The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online. Plus, we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. This week I'm very pleased to be joined by Colin McCann, who, already a very distinguished novelist, has written something slightly out of his usual line in his new book, American Mother, which is written or co-written or with Diane Foley, who was the mother, is the mother of James Foley, the American journalist who was murdered by ISIS in Syria in 2014. Um, welcome, Colin. Thank you. Can I, I mean, the first question to ask is just how did this book come about? I mean, you know, you've got a very blossoming career in literary fiction. And in some ways, you know, a sort of book written with, you know, a sort of well-known person writing about this sort of thing kind of slots into a kind of non-fiction genre that wouldn't obviously be a match for someone. Yeah, it's my... It's my first uh, take on on, on in, in nonfiction, but it actually uh, it it laces in with uh, a lot of the other books. So it, you know, it's written with Diane Foley, as you said, uh, you know, the mother of James Foley, and probably the second most iconic photograph of the first part of the twenty first century after the towers coming down was Jim Foley in the desert in the orange jumpsuit with the you know the man the black balaclava beside him and. Uh, we all know what happened. Uh, Jim Jim was uh, beheaded. So I remember the day when that came into my inbox, and you know, it was just like that, it was one of those stunning images. A lot of us actually remember where we were when 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 that image came in. Later that same day, however, some other friends of mine sent me images of of, of Jim Foley, and this is where where it, it sort of like took the oxygen out of the air for me because they sent me pictures of him in a bunker a couple of years before he was killed, reading a novel of mine called Let the Great World Spin. So try to imagine like what, what, what that felt like. You know, here, here I was looking at a, at a photograph of a man with his, you know, his bloodied head upon his back. And then uh, an, a, a, another photograph that I'm trying to juggle as well, him reading a, a novel of mine. So I wrote to her. I wrote to the mother a few months later, uh, Diane. And I said, look, you know, if anybody wants to write about Jim or write about yourself, or if we need some help telling your story, I'd be delighted to, to, to try and help. I never heard back from her because she never got the email until seven years later. And I'd written a book called A Paragon, which is about Israel and Palestine. And she was part of a book club and, and we got introduced online. And then she told me I was never able to tell my story. So I drove up from New York, where I live, to New Hampshire and spent a couple of days with her and realized I've got to try and help her tell her story. That's absolutely extraordinary. And, I mean, did you approach it? Did you think, my job here is to be, as it were, a ghostwriter? Because the way you've structured the book, I'm really interested in the technique and the, the way you've approached it. I mean, you've got, it's bookended yeah. by these two passages, which are third person right. rather than first person. What, yeah. you know, how, do, how did you think, I'm going to make this different? Or why did you think you needed to make it different from an ordinary ghostwritten memoir? So when I drove up to see her, and talk with her and her husband, I thought, oh, maybe there's a novel here. And then she told me that she was going to go down to uh, Virginia to talk with one of her son's killers. He had just 
so Alexander Cody, who's from London, uh, it was one of the, the, the Beatles who had been in, in, in the infamous gang who had joined ISIS and had been kidnapped with El Shafi El Sheikh, or in, oh, sorry, been captured with El Shafi El Sheikh um, in Syria, stripped of their British citizenship, brought to the United States to go on trial. Part of his plea agreement was that he would talk to the victims and or the families of victims. She, Diane Foley, who's this incredible woman, decides that she wants to go down to talk to her son's killer. Her husband doesn't want to go with her. Her, her, her sons and her family don't want to go with her. And she said, will you come with me? And I said, absolutely, I will. Oh, so, so you were there. <laughs> I was there. But I took myself out of the book. I didn't want to be in the book. I didn't want to Truman Capote it. You know, I didn't want to be, you know, in cold blood. I didn't want to be a character there. So um, I'm, I'm sort of the fly on the wall. When we walk into that room, and that was spectacular. And in, 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 I just, um, you know, we walk into this big, empty room in this Virginia um, courthouse with no windows, no windows whatsoever. Uh FBI agents, security guards, defense, prosecution, table, Alexander Cody in his jumpsuit, shackles on his on, on, on his ankles, waiting for us, reading Patrick Radden Keefe's book, Say Nothing, in, 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 in front of us. We walk in, sit down, Diane sits four feet away from him, and suddenly the whole room dissolves, and I'm looking him in the eye, and I'm allowed as a family friend, quote-unquote, to ask questions. What he doesn't realize is that I blurbed Patrick Radden Keefe's great book, you know, say nothing. And my name is literally sitting in front of him uh, as he's, he's there. And I should say, as we look at this uh, American mother, Patrick Radden Keefe has Patrick blurbed Radden this Keefe as well. Gave, gave, gave a because I, I told him this story and he said, oh, I want to read the book. And then he loved the book and he said, OK, you know, and, you know, all of these things <laughs> works in they work in, in spectacular circles. But um he was interesting. Cody was really interesting because he'd been portrayed in the papers over here and in Ireland and elsewhere as a football thug, you know, a hooligan, yeah. uh, you know, QPR fan and whatever, you know, this was the big thing. And one of my first questions was, oh, yeah, do you, su- you support QPR? I wanted to establish this uh, relationship. He said, no, I've never been. I went to a late Norian game, he said once, and he'd, he'd been to one English game against Yugoslavia and he wasn't a football fan at, at all. And, and then this complex man started to emerge. He was born here in London, became radicalized. He was Greek Orthodox at first. His mother was from Greece, father from Ghana. And then he went to, to Syria, went to Gaza first, actually. And, and I'd written uh, a book set in uh, the West Bank and some in, in, in Gaza. And so, I, I, oh, wow, I began to think. And, and the weird thing was that Diane was sitting with her son's killer. And we both kind of thought, well, we don't necessarily like him, but we kind of understand him. And this deep sort of conversation um, emerges over three days about compassion, faith, ISIS, engagement, war, rules of engagement during war, torture, all of these different so things. So there's a lot of that conversation, which is sort of attributed in those sections to Diane. That's, a lot of that's coming out of your interview with yes. him. Yeah. I mean, was Diane less loquacious in that moment? I don't know if she was less loquacious. I think she's one of the most deeply emotionally intelligent uh, people that I know. Was she able to articulate things in the way that I eventually articulated them for her? I'm not sure. She wasn't certainly wasn't able to write them down. 
I was able to write them down. So I was able to intuit uh, what was going on in, in her head and in her heart. But there's something deeply, deeply emotionally intelligent about uh, Diane Foley. And I think her son, too, who was a, a journalist who went into those sort of anonymous corners and, and was quite brave and, 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 and uh, a good writer, too. Now, I mean, interested the the evolution of this because you've said first your instinct was to say which is an act of sort of straightforward, you know, um, literary and practical generosity to say, you know, I would like to help you write your story, and then you say, you know, you met when you thought maybe there's a novel in this, yeah. and at this stage, you know, you're suddenly finding this character, you know, this third beetle, quite intriguing. Does the novelist in you then go actually maybe he's the novel? Maybe he's the story. Still is. I, I mean, he might be. I mean, this story doesn't, like, as you know, stories don't end. I mean, where do you find a beginning and where do you find an end? I mean, one of the great things about the literary experience is that, well, yes, you do have to find a beginning and you do have to find an end, but the beginning begins much before the first sentence and the end comes long after the, uh, uh, the last sentence. And I still think about Alexander Cote and um, that he's sitting in for 23 and a half hours a day in maximum security prison in Florence, Colorado, and 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 what that life is like, what what that head is like, what he what he's thinking about. He also has three daughters, who the photos uh, he showed the, Diane the photos of of his daughters. They were in Syria in a camp that turned out to be largely one of those what's a horrible term that people call like a rape camp. So his wife and his three children managed to escape and get to Turkey. They're in Turkey right now. I have a feeling that those three girls one day will come and, and, and try to seek out um, Diane because Diane sought out Alexander Cody and forgave him. And I have a funny feeling that this story is not finished and that, that maybe that's the novelist in me thinking, right, uh, <laughs> maybe that's the story further, for, further down the line. But I took it as a very serious nonfiction. Well, that's, the, I mean, that question of technique and the novelist in you, I'm, Really intrigued by how, you know, well, whether you think that a novelist and a journalist, because there's a sort of third writer in here as well, is James, you know, who was absolutely committed to producing the sort of journalistic version of the truth. And how much you felt the techniques of the novelist, which you use quite freely here, are at odds or, or complementary to the sort of really journalistic style fact-checking fidelity that goes through. You know, how did you... Compose this because the main part, I should say, for our listeners is first person, yeah, told in Diane's voice, Diane's voice, yeah, and obviously you write sort of free and directly in her head in yes. the non third person section. I mean, did you sit and transcribe hours and hours and hours of conversation with her and then turn them into this thing? Not really. I mean, look, I'm a journalist. My, my, I come from a, a family. My dad is a journalist in Dublin. Started out in London. In fact, uh, I was born in Dublin. But but I was I, I still describe myself and always will describe myself as a journalist. I actually don't believe there's a, you know that 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 poetry is better than playwriting or that 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 fiction is better than journalism. It's the proper word put down on the page in the right way that evokes the right sort of feeling that's what i care about but storytelling i don't care about fiction i don't care about non-fiction in fact i don't even believe that there should be a gulf between this idea of fiction and non-fiction it all comes down to storytelling you know facts 
can be manipulated in all sorts of extraordinary ways. History gets manipulated. What I really wanted to get to was to try and get to the texture of the truth of what was going on in that room. And then also what was going on in that woman's head and her heart when she, you know, she lost her daughter and then started to change the whole landscape of hostages and, and hostage taking. But it's a really, I mean... For me, it's a it, it was one of, one of the big things. You know, how do I push the language enough so that it it doesn't feel false, but also like to give the reader a chance to to be there in the room with 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 Cody when he uh, you know when he went and and there's a moment it gives some of the stuff away, but I don't really care. He, we, there's a moment when they shake hands, and you know, as a Muslim man, he's not supposed to reach out uh, to uh, shake her hand, but he does. You should say he'd broken some of the other injunctions of Islam along the way as well. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Like non-combatants and uh, yeah, taking out aid workers, etc., etc. By the way, he he thought about these things, or he was, he, he, you know, and he's sitting down and it, as I say, in that prison cell, and he and he, he is thinking um, about those things. I'd like to see him again. In fact, I got to tell you this: I got kicked out of the uh, of the interviews because I was kind of aggressive with them. And uh, the 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 defense team who was looking after him didn't like some of my my questions, and they they asked me to leave. He he actually demanded that I that 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 I be allowed to to come back. What was a lot of questioning they didn't like? Did you kill him? Did you torture him? Did you waterboard him? Where's his body buried? All the very direct questions that they were sort of like uh, you know because he had admitted his guilt, but El Shafi El Sheikh had, had yet to go to trial. Not that it would have influenced. We were allowed, I was told beforehand, you can ask any question you want. And also, we kind of, you know, he saw, um, because I'm Irish and he was studying Irish politics in a way and, you know, he, he was sort of against the British government in certain ways. He felt, you know, he felt a certain sort of kinship. He was also in America and, you know, and it was a sort of familiar voice. And um, But Diane uh, had this relationship with him too. And how do you, I mean, you, you describe it very well in the book, but for, for our listeners, can you give a sense of what Diane's relationship with him was? What she, what your understanding of why she felt it would be important or positive to see him right. and how she negotiated that, that feeling? Because there is a sort of little bit of a, you look into the abyss going on here, isn't there? Well, yeah, you are looking into the abyss, but, but, but she has an extraordinary faith. Not one that I necessarily share, but I did try to communicate it in the book. She felt that that that, that the Holy Spirit had come into the room, and 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 she also wanted him to know that yes, you killed my son, but you did not kill my son. Because here I will talk to you about my son, and his story lives on. And you know, all of these things were going on. I also know she wanted to go in there and to offer forgiveness because she was as mad, at, maybe even more angry at the American government, than she was at Cody. The American government did not allow her to even gather money to pay a ransom. This is really extraordinary. So she was livid at even President Obama and his team. Yeah, it is surprising that, that, that in, in, the, in the book the, the real anger is towards Obama and his... his hey, look, I like Obama. Don't we all? And, and President Trump, who many of us think is kind of a bad right, thing, yeah. emerges a certain amount of credit. Yeah, I know. And it was really hard for me to write those lines, but you know, I had to write those lines because it's Diane's, Diane's, um, Diane's thoughts. 
in the end, Obama c- came through. But in that moment when he's sitting down having tea, he has tea in the White House and she does not get offered tea. And she sits there and, 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 and he says, well, Jim was my highest priority. And she says, with all due respect, sir, my son was not your highest priority. Wow. And it takes gumption. Now, here's a woman in her 60s who we know that like she, she feels that she largely gets ignored in the world. People look past her or they say, oh, we're sorry for your loss. But she has this enormous, like enormously well-controlled rage. She comes across as a very ordinary person. But um, she wants to change the whole landscape of uh, how the United States in particular looks at hostage. In the yes, hostage we should state. say, parenthetically, that this is a big theme of the book. I right. mean, you know, there's an emotional theme, there's a practical theme. Can you sketch what, what that change needs to be and why? I mean, because there's a very sort of startling, strange thing right. that there's such a difference, which many of our listeners probably aren't familiar with, between the way that most European countries deal yes. with hostage taking and right. the way that the UK and America do. Yeah, you know, the French pay, uh, the Spanish pay, uh, the Danish allow their citizens to pay. The Danish government maybe don't pay, but definitely, you know, most of the, the governments in, uh, in, in, in Europe pay for their hostages. It's roundabout. It's never official policy. Official policy in the United States was we do not negotiate with terrorists. There's also the British policy. We do not negotiate whatsoever. Diane was saying, well, we must negotiate it, even if it's in a sort of back-channel way. Now, here's the, the irony of all of this is that, you know, the, um, Jim Foley would have been freed if there had been, say, $5 million. The Spanish uh, hostages, French hostages, I now know, anywhere between 2 and $6 million were paid for, uh, you know, and these were motorbikes going across borders, carrying cash. I mean, it's real spy stuff. But um, Jim Foley would have gotten out for $5 million. The trial of El Shafi El Sheikh, not of Alexander Cody, because he pleaded guilty, but the trial of El Shafi El Sheikh. El Shafi El Sheikh was the other Beatle. I mean, Jihadi exactly. John, so-called, was vaporized by a drone. But That's right. there were two of them who were, were got. Two of them, were, uh, yeah. And he's the, he was the other Beatle. And... Uh, it cost anywhere between 50 million and 70 million dollars. Now, how ironic is that? That seven years after, you know, the the uh, the, the kidnapping, the, the government ends up spending this enormous amount of money to bring this man to justice. And by the way, what's interesting about this too is that he wasn't shipped off to Guantanamo. He didn't have the crap kicked out of him in in, in Abu Ghraib. He was taken over to Virginia, put in a jail cell given four lawyers to, who, 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 who would argue his case and given a chance at, uh, at justice. Although, I'll be honest with you, I could have argued better than some of those justices for him to, 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 to get off. But um, it was an extraordinary spectacle. And all credit to the British media and to the French media, they were there. Guess who wasn't there? The US media. Because you know what was happening down the road? Well, it was Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. Exactly. Exactly. And is that, I mean, it's Diane who gets cross about that in the book. Was yeah. that Diane getting, I mean, I'm interested in the places where your view, I mean, like how your view of Cody may have differed from Diane's, how much, you know, some of these things that you'd have felt. Yeah. Are you occasionally ventriloquizing your feelings through Diane? or? Of course I am, but I have to tell you that she 
and I went over every single line. It's not as if I just like wrote it and said, okay, there, there it is. But I said, Dan, okay, is this okay? Right? Is this okay? And, and so, 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 so it, is, it is her book. That's why we say, you know, by me with uh, Diane Foley. Yeah. Did you try and capture her voice? Because, so you, you know, you use a lot of metaphors. It's quite, it's quite, quite poetic. Are they the metaphors that spring to her lips? Often, I mean, do you, it, it, did you make a sort of systematic effort to capture her cast of mind, her idiom, or was it more, as you say, intuiting the texture of her feelings? Sometimes I push it. Sometimes I pushed it, um, but but I push it because I want the reader to understand it. You know, if if Diane were were, were here, she she'd tell you this. She wanted a lot more uh, religion, for example, in 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 the book. She wanted to start every chapter with a you know a quotation from the Bible. And I was like, Dan, please don't do this because we want the reader to 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 see. But we will talk about your faith, and your faith will emerge from this book. I promise you. But if you talk too much about it, you will begin to lose people. So we had to have those those, those dialogue about uh, that sort of dialogue about how to tell. The real truth about how how she, how she felt, and yeah, there is times I, I push that. There are the times when she's. I have a scene where she is by the fridge, and she opens the fridge, and 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 and, and she has all scene, all yeah. of these all of these thoughts. It's a literary scene, but it puts the reader in place, and and so it it, it sort of it, it gets into that territory of you know what is honest and what is true and how do you how do you bridge uh, you know the the gap between what is factual and what is actually deeply textural and and then true uh, at the same time can i ask how diane's family her husband who's a figure in the book yeah. and her other children who you know at various points you say you know like her son isn't really as on board with corder as uh, she might be right there's were there concerns where you sort of were negotiating, I guess, with privacy and with the feelings of the rest of the family? You go like, okay, this is Diane. She wants to write this book. She wants to write this book with me. But, you know, I don't want to figure in it. Right. Were, you know, was there a negotiation? Did the rest of the family all feel this is a great thing to do? Or were some of them like, I'm not sure about this? Some of them didn't want to do it at all. But we showed it to them. John, her husband, wrote me a beautiful email afterwards. He said he didn't think... That it was going to work, uh, and now and, and then afterwards he felt that it worked. Her sons, um, you know, some of them won't read it, and for Diane that's okay because Diane's larger purpose is actually a political purpose. She doesn't want to necessarily draw attention to Diane Foley. She wants to draw attention to the hostages, the people who get taken now, how to help the families that are that that, that are suffering, whether they be in Russia, Venezuela, Gaza. Elsewhere, she's in touch with them. Eight American families that uh, still have hostages um, in in Gaza. So, was it your sense when um, she first approached you and said, "You know, look, I've always wanted to write my story and I haven't been able to," that she was thinking pragmatically rather than "I haven't been heard, I want a voice." She was thinking, "I have a story which has a sort of celebrity value, has an enormous emotional wallop, and will serve the thing that I'm doing as." you know, my legacy to my son. Well, as you know, it's like there's that line about like, what, what, what's the greatest agony? It's that, you know, um, holding the untold story inside you. And I think that was part of it for her. She was holding the story and that she needed to tell it, but she needed to tell it for a purpose that was beyond her. Also, she wanted Jim to be recognized uh, and, and, and continue to be recognized. 
And, you know, like John Berger says, never again will a single story be told as if it were the only one. And and she sort of recognised the kaleidoscopic need for us to tell the story over and over and over again. There's a great documentary about Jim called, you know, Jim, the J- James Foley story. Is that enough? No, it's never enough. Is this book enough? No, no way. We've got to keep on telling. Did you stuff. feel you got a good sense of Jim? I mean, when you were sort of doing this book, I'm imagining, you know, it's journalistic book as well as a novel novel yeah. in some ways. Yeah. You know, did you research it as you would have a profile when you were writing this? Yeah. Yeah, I did. But, like, sitting here right now, I know it kind of sounds a little bit weird, I don't, but 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 I feel like he's sitting on my shoulder at times and, 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 and he's telling me things. I, I liked, I obviously never met him. And I did have that relationship with him because he read my work and he... Yeah, uh, and then apparently when this is not in the book i don't put this in the book but when he was uh, captured he would narrate the plots of novels and one of the novels that he narrated before he was killed was uh, my book let the great world spin and so that that that's all odd i don't uh, like i tell i tell that story because well you know because jim I, I have this this relationship with with, with him but um i do feel in in a strange way that he's um yeah that that he would have been a good friend and that I would have, would have sort of enjoyed him. I mean, he was he would go to the front lines, and he he also like kind of like me. He liked to talk to other people. He liked to, he he would go into the market in Damascus, and he would find the older man playing chess, or the young girl with the backpack full of uh, you know books, and uh, the the supposedly anonymous story. And he would make something out of that anonymous story. He'd also liked hanging out in the hotel with the other journalists and having a few beers late at night and that sort of life too. And also he was someone who started wanting to write fiction and turned to journalism and you you sort of did it the other way around. Yeah, well, that's it. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I feel privileged to... to, to uh, and I know, I don't mean that to sound naff, but I do feel privileged to, to, to have had a chance to to, to tell some of, of, of his story. Because a lot of journalists out there... look. You know how many journalists are getting killed now, as we all know? And like there's over like 90 in, in, in Gaza. We're talking about like 40 or more um, in, in Ukraine and then in Mexico and other places. Journalism is, 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 is under attack. He was one of the ones who 10 years ago was going to the very edge of journalistic intent. You know, he didn't have, he had to get his own fixer. He didn't have a big company behind him. He wasn't going with the New York Times or the, you know, the Irish Times or whatever else it happened to be. He was going on his own. He was a freelance journalist. He did it because he really wanted to do it. And that's a powerful thing. And and, and those men and women who are doing that nowadays, they're really putting themselves at risk. Why? Because they want to get at the, 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 the elemental, what they see as the elemental truth. An aspect of his story as well, which we haven't touched on, but given Diane's extraordinarily strong Catholic faith, and he was raised in that faith and went to a Jesuit school, didn't he? Right. Um, yeah. During his first captivity, which we haven't mentioned, some, some listeners might know, Jim was actually captured in Libya, Libya yeah. while he was freelancing, I think, was it four years before? Yes. Something like yeah. that, anyway. He converted to Islam. Yeah. What's your read on that? Oh. Does that differ from Diane's read on that? It's a great question. My read sort of it dovetails with, with, with Diane's. Diane's a bit sensitive about it when, 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 when she gets asked because but but she has more or less the same answer. He was still practicing his deep down faith. 
it didn't matter if it was like on a carpet facing east or if it was in in an altar in a you know in 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 a church in Wisconsin. He had a faith that 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 was deeply human. Uh, he had a like a spirituality that that recognized not only his own place in the universe but the place of, of other people so for him to 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 get a chance to pray he said okay well i want to pray with the people who are praying so for him it wasn't about like compartmentalizing it and saying well now i have you know uh, i i've gone over and i've become become muslim it wasn't about about that for him i think it was a deeply held genuine human faith did he talk to diane about it do you no. know no no and and that's the funny thing. Like Dan uh, has, Dan is still learning about her son. Uh, her her son would come home, and when he came home from Libya, he would ask her about herself. He wouldn't talk about himself. Then she started to discover that he went on 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 this like uh, lecture tour. He went to Marquette University where he'd been a student and started talking about these ideas of moral courage. He said, "I'm a courageous. Yes, I have physical courage, but what I really aspire to is I want to have moral courage. I don't think I have it yet, but I'm you know I'm, I'm I I want to try try and get." And Dan didn't know this stuff about him. Neither did John, her husband. But after he died, they began to, you know talk to his friends and, and, and learn what sort of person um, he was. She still thinks that she's learning about him as she goes along, which is, you know, and it's interesting for me. Like when I first went, when I first went into their house and I sat down with them, Dan and John at their kitchen table in, you know, in New Hampshire. After a couple of hours, John turned to me and said, you remind me of Jim. And I wasn't sure how to take that. It was like, was that like, in the end, I take take it now as a great compliment, but I thought, oh, this is am I getting into the the the, the, the wrong sort of territory here? Am I, you know, I, I don't want to be you know that substitute um, storyteller, and it wasn't that way um, in the end at all. But uh, it was a, I, I'm 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 very close with them, and now because we're going on tour, talking about the book, we're traveling together, and and it's actually. The, the relationship is sort of deepening and uh, I think she's a uh, she's a colleague she's uh, you know a writer she's a mother figure she's all of these different things to me well there's a strange coda to the book which which you kind of is part of the framing device which is that this interview with the killer she gets a letter from him yeah. a couple of letters from him rather late right unless you reproduce one of them in full just a kind of parenthetic thing. Do you do you have to kind of write off to this high security prison getting copyright permission, or is the no. assumption you can just Let, wait? letters once they're sent and they're they're, they're received, they're, they're they're your property. So there, that was um, Diane's property. I did think about it, like uh, sending sending him a letter and asking him, are, are, "Are you are you cool with this?" But the letter alone is extraordinary. You, just, you see the handwriting. It's you know, it hit hit. You know, remember in school when we actually did do handwriting back in the the, the, the old days. Uh, like you had to put the, the 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 letter to the top of the line, and and um, he uses words like whilst instead yes. of while, and and it's fascinating. But that's to, a, to, that's to, a kind of killer moment, isn't it? That you, oh, yeah. Sorry, worse. Um, no, not, not the right. It is the right. It is the right. The discovery that one of the Ransom notes yes. used that same locution, and she exactly. spotted it. Exactly, exactly. So in the ransom notes, they're using the word whilst, and then in his letter from from prison, 
he he's using the exact same word and that shiver goes through you it's just like oh yeah this is the man who also wrote my son's last dying words he sat down and pen and paper he wrote down what jim foley had to say in this like death to america screed that he did on camera before he was beheaded do you and diane have the same kind of view of what this guy's feeling is now how much he's because it's it's really ambivalent and to the reader really interestingly so and and tantalizingly so that says that he sort of apologizes yeah and he sort of accepts though he slips into the passive tense a bit right that you know he would maybe maybe he would have done some things differently right um but there's a lot that he denies that he deflects i mean is your sense that this is someone which i guess is unformed by diane's faith that this is someone essentially trying to find a way of squaring his own conscience and sense of himself while not looking at it dead on yeah that's nicely said and but i guess we're all that way you know there's no absolutes i mean i think part of the problem with our times is this disease of certainty we're all so certain we all have to be absolutely this and absolutely that cody was apologetic he was sad for what he had done he cried during our, our interview it was not theatrical i know it wasn't theatrical because he waited until like deep into the second day for it to uh, for for it to occur it, it wasn't premeditated uh, he had a lot of complicated feelings did he absolutely apologize no he said i'm sorry for what you suffered i'm sorry for what you went through he never absolutely said i am sorry for what i have done and he still sort of said it was all done in the fog of war and all these things but guess what she understands that she and and she was prepared to say okay i i i forgive you uh, uh, anyway i'm not asking for you to you know fall on your knees and 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 weep and and do all these things i want to understand who you are i also want to tell the world that it's okay to go in and like maybe even try to understand who your enemy happens to be because that doesn't happen anymore like we are not interested because we live in these times that are diseased with certainty Colin McCann, thank you very much for your time. Thank you.